everybody, welcome to episode 14 of Literary Disco, the mixtape episode. We'll begin with our traditional bookshelf revisit section, in which Todd, Julia, and I find something on our bookshelves to discuss, or in Todd's case, something he saw on TV, or caught at the movie theater. <laughs> a thought he had while in the shower, or on the toilet. Or maybe he liked something on Facebook. This is fucked up. You know what? I am a very deep thinker. You and are. sometimes I need to take a break from my deep thoughts and do a podcast with you fucktards. Okay. Then wow. we will enter our literary mixtape. Well, enter? How are we going to enter a mixtape? That's going to be fun. Wow. Is that classified as cheating on my wife? Then we will discuss. Then we will discuss our literary mixtape. We'll talk about a short story, a poem, and an essay. The short story is Happiness Will Be Yours by Joe Mino. The poem is Suicide Note, an annual by Mary Carr. And the essay is The Cooler Me by Eric Puckner, all of which we will link to on our website. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. My fellow hosts are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Hi, guys. Hello. Hey. I'll start. Go for it. All right. Okay, so um, uh, I think I've mentioned this before, or at least I've mentioned it to you too. So I am training for a marathon, which is in three weeks. And um, as Ryder mentioned last time, um, he's been listening to audiobooks. And on your recommendation, Ryder, I started listening to Gone Girl by Gillian Flynn. You recommended mm-hmm. that to me, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I finished that real quick uh, because it's a great audiobook. The actors are... They do a great job with it. So it is. Good. It was wow. at the time the best audiobook I ever listened to because it, it really kept me moving forward because I was desperate to know, you know, what the hell was mm-hmm. going on with these people. And uh, so I just now I'm like three quarters of the way through Sharp Objects, Gillian Flynn's first novel, and it's even. Is it Gillian? By it's the way, Gillian. is it really Gillian? Yeah. Huh. They say Gillian on the Sharp Objects stuff, but then it's obviously been corrected. To Gillian, um. Um, but yeah, that's her name. But uh, Sharp Objects is really good too. And what I love about these books is that uh, all the characters are horrible. Every single <laughs> character. <laughs> I, I have a it's feeling like, it's like Thanksgiving yeah, at the Goldberg exactly. home. She, that's actually very. That's exactly. a really similar. That's a good way to put it because every single character, I'm like, oh, this is this person's got to be the killer because that person's horrible. And then I'm like, oh, new character? Oh, worst person ever. Oh, worst person ever. Worst person ever. And that is how she writes. She doesn't hold anything back. She just thinks that every human that ever existed is messed up and mean and almost prototypically evil in a way that it seems like it's an allegory. I mean, people who've read Gone Girl will know what I'm talking about, but it's really, it really draws you in because you think she'll lull you into this feeling of, oh my God, I identify with this character. Wow, this thing she's saying or he's saying is really insightful to my own experience. And then it turns out that person is just truly awful. Um, and I really am enjoying these books where there are no good people. None. So in a similar tact, let me tell you guys what I'm revisiting on the bookshelf. Um, and as Ryder accurately predicted, it's, it's pretty important stuff. So uh, I, have a, I have an annoying habit, a personally annoying habit. It's not like, you know, I pick my nose and eat Is it. Is it or this? It's close. Uh, or, Talking you know, lot. wiping my ass on walls. This is annoying. Uh, um, Having a so, lot of dependent clauses before right. 
getting to I don't know why I'm friends with either of you, but also I don't know why each morning I read the comics um, and I read comics that I hate every morning. Including Family Circus. I read Family Circus every morning. Is this your bookshop revisit? Well, I'm getting to something better than Family Circus, but I read Family Circus every single morning. I read Marmaduke every single morning, and I have no, maybe because it's at the end of the calendar section, the LA Times, and I just get there. I'm like, oh, I better read it. There's Once you start reading the comics page, you have to read all the comics. I'm aware that I'm doing this to myself, and I and I'm pained by it, and I I am getting therapy for it. But what I was remembering. Oh, I also read Peanuts every morning, even though Ugh. they're repeats from 40 years ago. Dumbest comic. But what ever. I was... No! What? <gasps> yes, Peanuts is the most boring thing ever. <gasps> By the way, this is also another day of sweeping generalizations from writer's truck. There hasn't been a good comic strip since Funky Winker Bean in 82. You're telling me that you think Peanuts is entertaining? You think, yes. I mean, like, well, no, no, no. I have a dog, no, no. so I find Snoopy what? adorable. Peanuts? When he, when he walks <laughs> around and it's like, I'm going to pretend to fly on my doghouse today for no reason. I, I don't like the Red Baron. No Riders story team. arc, no joke, <laughs> yes. nothing no. funny, nothing interesting. It's like, yeah, I understand they've become iconic in some way. Like, Lucy no. with her, like, five-cent advice booth is kind of funny. The Charlie Brown, you know, tries to go to kick the football and it gets pulled out every time. Ha ha. But that's it. Those iconic moments. But then most of them, when you actually read them, are just the most boring. It's no. Like, like nothing happens. No. It's like, each, number one, each... Charles Schultz is a goddamn American yeah, hero. He, I agree. He fought for us in World War One. I. I don't. I don't know. Korea. <laughs> Second of all, those are. It's not meant to be jokey. Like it's. It's about or funny or entertaining. No, listen. What it's it not is meant to be. <laughs> mean anything or make you chuckle or make you think you're supposed to have a lobotomy when you read it that's the point no what peanuts is is adult (laughs) extreme feelings distilled down into childhood experiences so charlie brown is you know depressive schroeder is very focused on his work and lucy's a distracting lady in his life she's giving fake advice but everyone is desperate for therapy i mean they're you if you see them as children as in family circus yes it is stupid but if you see the their existence as representative of adult experiences then it is it is meaningful i can't believe you'd feel that way I, i i i think what you're talking about is the idea of the comic which i agree is interesting and i agree the cultural influence of the comic is amazing but as of reading a comic your average peanut strip is the dumbest thing i've ever read <laughs> nothing happens there's not interesting it's but like the concepts behind peanuts and the fact that they become iconic characters it's a lot like the winnie the pooh conversation yes. they've come to mean a lot and they they were the first of their kind which is so important and i give credit for that but basically post 1943 or whatever it's like it, you know 1950 it, they've lost all cultural relevancy you read them and hold on i will give a caveat to the specials because when they were translated to television they actually put stories in there and they were long stories and they were interesting they didn't and they put were funny stories in there they took the stories from the comics that if you read them you would feel like snoopy going on arc. a journey yes. to find his siblings the great pumpkin also yeah the great pumpkin Things like that. So, uh, what I was trying to talk about before uh, Ryder and Julia put on their luchadora masks and threw down about the history of the uh, Snoopy comic strip 
is the what I thought was the greatest comic strip ever, and what the the books of them that I read constantly when I was a kid over and over again, and that is Bloom County. Do you guys remember Bloom County? No. With Opus, I do the remember Penguin? it, but I never read it. Um, so I had these books, um, and my favorite one was a book called Penguin Dreams and Stranger Things. It was a collection of the Bloom County comic strips. It was published in 1985. So uh, Julia was two, so that's why she doesn't remember it. I was two. Um, that's right. But I, I read these books over and over and over again, and I laughed my ass off. And so today I was thinking about this, and I was like, where are those books? Why don't I have those books? Because I have all the books I had in 1985. Like, well, not all of them. I don't have all my Choose Your Own Adventures, but I have most of them. And I have none of my Bloom County books. And I swear to God, I read those things daily because I kept them in the bathroom. And, um, you know, I like to crap. Uh, <laughs> I, I can't tell you how many people have made that noise about me when I'm talking over the last 41 years. Uh, odd. But, and then I was remembering I read all the Bloom County books I also had all of the Far Side books um, I had, I regret to inform Ryder, a bunch of the Peanuts collections of comic books comic strip books because they are great, um, you go girl and I absolutely loved them, I remember when I would go on vacation as a kid, like I'd go fishing in uh, eastern Washington and I would pack like five of these collections of comic strip books with me. And I had completely forgotten about that until today, and I went and I looked at all these books, and I have no idea what happened, but I blame my mother. I'm sure she threw them away. And mm -hmm. uh, if she were not dead, I would call her today, and we would be in a fight because of this. Absolutely loved them. Loved them. Righty, your turn. Well, okay, so I saw something on my shelf today that I thought would be interesting to talk about. Um... It's a book that I have that I read, I guess, maybe about eight years ago called The Heart is Deceitful Above All Things. By oh, by J.T. Leroy. Leroy. Yeah. And He's for not those real. of you who don't know, J.T. Leroy is not a real person. It is the, oh, the pseudonym. Oh, that lady. Yes. Yeah. That, uh, created by a woman named Laura Albert. And... Um, so it's a really interesting story just in the first place. It, it basically, this person, J.T. Leroy, started writing these short stories in the mid-90s and um, started contacting a lot of famous writers and reaching out to them and, and uh, got getting his stories published. And he had this whole backstory about being this abused, gender-confused, homeless, like, tragic kid because he was only like 16 supposedly when he was reaching out to these writers and, and writing these stories so he started getting published um and those stories eventually were collected and that's what this is the heart is deceitful above all things is a collection of stories that are interconnected and they kind of tell the story of a young man who is abused from basically the day he was born and his mom is on the road as a prostitute and drags him into it and it's an awful tragic it's like reading a train wreck watching a train wreck scene, whatever, somewhere. I mixed my metaphor. It's like running the gauntlet. <laughs> it's like running the gauntlet down <laughs> into a train wreck. Um, but anyway, when I read this, I, like the rest of America, thought that J.T. Leroy was a real person. And a lot of the book 
and uh, the novel that that he published too was called Sarah, and there, it was very similar. It was sort of understood that you were reading something slightly autobiographical, and that was part of. You, you look at the reviews, even on the, the the beginning of my edition, and and the reviews from, you know, I don't know, San Francisco Weekly or Newsweek or whatever. They're all. They all reference its authenticity, its grittiness, I, how I the reviewed, voices... I reviewed The Heart is Deceitful Above All Things. <gasps> did you? What did you and say? Did you, you had no idea at the time, right? I loved it. And I got yeah. I got a um, I got a thank you letter from JT Leroy. Right. Really? Wow. So you have a letter from a Yeah, I named person. it one of the best books of whatever year it came out in whatever newspaper I wrote it in. And I got a very nice thank you letter from JT Leroy and a promise that he, in quotes would send me a raccoon penis bone, because that's what he used to send everybody, is raccoon penis bones. Right. See, so there was this whole character that J.T. Leroy that was created by Laura Albert, and uh, to the point where she ended up using her sister-in-law to pose as J.T. Leroy. So her sister-in-law would show up places like at public events or photo shoots and wear a wig and glasses so people would think that it was like a boy in a gender you know, gender-confused male, which is kind of what J.T. Leroy had been represented to be. Um, but, you know, eventually people started realizing that things that this person was saying was not adding up to the biography of J.T. Leroy, and then the New York Times finally exposed it all as a hoax. And Laura Albert ended up getting sued because she had signed a movie contract as J.T. Leroy, Ooh. and, like, as opposed... Yeah, as opposed to writing a, uh, a book under a, a pen name... You can't sign a movie contract and get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars. So she had to, she got sued and had to pay all this money back. In some ways, I think this, because of when it happened, it gets grouped with the James Fry uh, controversy. But it's actually very different and in some ways more nuanced. Because with James Fry, it was all about, are you telling the truth? Is this a memoir? But with J.T. Leroy, it was always fiction. Mm-hmm. And, and and so it's hard, you know, I just, earlier tonight when I was thinking about this, I found a YouTube clip of Laura Albert on the moth and she tells the story of creating this character and she talks about it like as herself as a sort of victim of abuse and as a kid growing up in group homes and having this tough childhood that the only way she could express it was through this male character that she created jt Leroy. Hmm. i kind of think she's full of shit especially when you watch her doing the moth she comes across very pretentious and self-important and i also don't like the way that she positions herself as like a complete victim of the world when she clearly was so concerned about what people thought not just about her fiction but she she created this real bullshit story where she's giving out raccoon penises for example right like yeah. mm-hmm. or hiring somebody or asking somebody to pretend to be a fake character like all that's too far but i guess i i wanted to see what you guys thought about it because there's an argument that she makes which is this sort of therapeutic argument like i i needed to create this character in order to tell these stories but there's also just a basic George Eliot argument, let's call it, mm-hmm. which is that pen names have been used forever and for a lot of political, social, cultural reasons. And George Eliot is an example of a woman writing under a, a man's name in order to be taken more seriously. And I, I wonder what you guys think about J.T. Leroy. The, the sordid side of it is that she preyed on the kindness of others. So she right. was trying to get these stories published and sort of uh, aligned herself with writers like um, Dennis Cooper, who really championed his or her work and put their neck out for this person that they thought it was. So it's not like it's a pen name that's just a pen name. It's a it's a fake human being mm-hmm. who 
it's one thing if you're writing stuff under a different name and sending it out and getting it published in the New York or whatever. That's great. Whatever. But to try and have someone else push your career forward on the basis of what is your horror story, only yes. for that person to find out years later that you're a 30-something woman living a good life in San Francisco, and they thought you were an abused 15-year-old or whatever, yeah. right. is disgusting. Well, that's the thing. Um, you read these reviews, and they all say, like, the fact that this person is only 16 means that they're a genius and, that you know, this authentic right. voice that comes from the streets. One of the best books I've read, read in the last few years is um, Gnome de Plume by Carmela Chiraru. Um, and it's all it is is she takes, like, 15 or 16 writers who used pen names and tells their stories and why they use them. And what's really interesting about pen names is for all of the big ones, like George Eliot, um, you know, the Brontes, all those kinds of people, uh, they're using them to overcome, you know, social obstacles, not to create social obstacles to make them seem like people who are overcoming things. You know what I mean? So, and, right. and what is great about this book, Gnome de Plume, is that it traces what social obstacles need to be overcome. So it gets, you know, so, and in the beginning, of course, it's all women who need to enter the literary world through being male, but later there are people who are lesbians or who are transgender who want to enter the literary world in a different way, or maybe they're extremely suicidal and depressed, or they committed some horrible crime and they need to, no, seriously, and they need to, you know, represent their work as their work. What JT Leroy is doing is something entirely different is she's using a pen name to gain entry in a completely different way. But it's not even a pen name. It's a pen. It's not even the, a the pen sex identity. Of the person. Yeah. Yeah. But well, a pen name doesn't mean sex or not sex. But I, yeah. I do think that there, there is some, something interesting that ends up being said about the literary world and the literary establishment, which is that we nowadays, this is something that's happened all the time, but I think it's happening more and more is that text doesn't exist by itself yeah. anymore. Yeah. You know, we can't ex- we can't pretend that it exists in a vacuum. Whenever we pick up a book, we know something about it that has already hooked us into it. Whenever we watch a TV show, we know. And that's why movies have the same actors or the same director or the same producer. Or, you know, there's always some element that we're, we're, we're... There's a meta text about the text that we're always aware of nowadays. Right. And it's becoming more and more overwhelming so that you, you're not even... You know, Blair Witch was a great example, too, of like... Oh, the story, and then the, the the marketing of that story became what the movie was about. So nobody even really talks that much about it as a film or like it as a as a as a a great experience that they had. They talk about how they first heard about the story and if they got the VHS tape, or they talk about it as an example of like great marketing and a movie that was successful and blah blah blah. And I think in this in the same way, you know, really what she took advantage of was the fact that nobody is going to read these stories by, like you were saying, taught a 30-something woman, probably successful in her own right in other areas of her life, uh, and take it seriously, you know, as as authentic voice. Uh, whereas if she created this character... But I don't understand why not. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I plenty agree. of people write plenty of stuff about that is completely different from their life, you know? Okay. No, and, I agree. I agree that, 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 that you should make that effort that we... But I think it's also, we should recognize that the literary establishment... Just like, you know, our, our culture in general, it's not even the literary world, 
we thrive on hearing the stories behind the story as much, if not more, than the actual story itself or the text right. itself. A lot of times, you know, yeah. we don't we don't hear about a book without hearing like why it was written or who you know. And well, I just, just think remember, that that's important. Just part think of about it. How, how what the three of us did after we read Half a Life. You know, he right. mm-hmm. Darren Strauss changed all the names, and all three of us went online and tried to figure out who the woman was that died. You know, well, we, I didn't, we, but well, well you, Todd and I you should have. You're a good <laughs> Julian, person. I did enough for you. Yeah. Well, I just think that you know, it's been interesting to me how often in the last like ten years we've had examples of stuff like this. Yeah. The New York Times. Remember the Jason Brown? Uh, there was the the glass. You know, the shattered yeah, glass. Stephen glass the yeah. Movie, Stephen Glass. There's all these examples, and then James Fry, of course. There's all these examples of people struggling with a a media landscape that is built on notions of truth and and Mm. and identity that I don't know if they if if it was always that way and people just got away with crap more because there was less uh, less investigation and less documentation. Or um, if this is sort of a new game that we all are playing as readers and or viewers and creators of art, where it's, you know, the idea that, that nothing can really exist on its own anymore, that it should be transmedia constantly, mm-hmm. and that that transmedia should include your biogra- biography. And- but sometimes a really unlikable person can write a really great book. I mean, what books in history... Some people in my family like that. Yeah, what books... <laughs> seriously, like, what books in history would we have lost if these people had to put their personalities forth all the time? Probably yeah. everything about Brady Snellis. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and on that note, that. ladies and gentlemen... <laughs> Stick around while we enter the mixtape. <laughs> Penetrate the mixtape. <laughs> Next. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, to Literary Disco. Today, we're going to do something that I don't think anyone ever imagined we would do. And by everyone, I mean anyone who thinks I don't like poetry, which is that we are going to talk about a poem that I actually picked. We're actually going to talk about three things today. It's what we're calling our mixtape episode, because, see, um, the show is called Literary Disco, so there's like a music subtext to it. So this is going to be our mixtape, even though tapes don't exist anymore. It's our playlist. Playlist. Oh, it just doesn't have the same sound, does it? Mixtape no, sounds. No, it doesn't. So much better. No, it. it doesn't. Let's go back to Vic. It tape. really doesn't. So we're going to look at today a poem, a short story, and an essay. And I actually happened to pick the poem and the short story. Um, the poem is a poem by Mary Carr which is on the Poetry Foundation website right now, and we'll put a link up to it on uh, the website and on the Facebook. And it's called Suicide's Note, an annual. Um, and if you don't know Mary Carr, she, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of hers, um, primarily because of her nonfiction. Um, so she wrote, her most famous book is probably The Liar's Club and then mm-hmm. um, Lit, which came out uh, a couple years ago. Um, you know, she was... Uh, basically a drug addict and had a terrible childhood and, uh, you know, was an alcoholic as an adult and had divorce. Classic and nonfiction 
fodder. Every bad thing that could possibly happen to her happened to her. <laughs> and she also has written a bunch of books of poetry, uh, most recently um, Sinner's Welcome, which came out uh, a couple years ago. But for some reason, I saw this poem on uh, poetryfoundation.org, and I had a, a particularly visceral reaction to it. And it might be because I've been thinking a lot lately, and, and here's where we're all going to get sad. I've been thinking a lot lately about people I know that have killed themselves. Um, we had a person we went to graduate school with um, who not long ago killed himself. Um, and I was thinking about these two friends of mine that I went to school with who both killed themselves. And then a Hollywood director, Tony Scott, jumped off a bridge in L.A. Um, and that had me thinking about all these, you know, people that you think are relatively stable um, who you find out, of course, are just like anybody else. They're just as fucked up and as upset um, and as lost as the rest of us can be. Um, but, of course, not all of us end up killing ourselves. Um, so won't, maybe I'll read the poem, and I, I won't read it in poet voice. We'll, we'll try not to do that. Um, mm -hmm. And then we'll talk about it. I hope you've been taken up by Jesus. Though so many decades have passed, so far apart we'd grown, between love transmogrifying into hate and those sad letters and phone calls and your face vanishing into a noose that I couldn't today name the gods you at the end worshipped, if any. There's a little bit of poet voice there. <laughs> Praise being impossible for the devoutly miserable. And screw my church who'd roast in hell, poor suffering bastards like you, unable to bear the masks of their own faces. With words you sought to shape, a world alternate to the one that dared inscribe itself so ruthlessly across your eyes. For you could not, could never fully refute the actual or justify the sad heft of your body, earn your rightful space, or pay for the parcels of oxygen you inherited. More than once you asked that I breathe into your lungs like the soprano in the opera I loved so my ghost might inhabit you and you ingest my belief in your otherwise only probable soul. I wonder, does your death feel like failure to everybody who ever loved you, as if our collective CPR stopped too soon, the defib paddles lost charge, the corpse punished us by never sitting up? And forgive my conviction that every suicide's an asshole. There's a good reason I am not God, for I would cruelly smite the self-smitten. I just wanted to say, ha ha, despite your best efforts, you are every second alive in a hard, gnawing way for all who breathed you deeply in. Each set of lungs, those rosy implanted wings, pink balloons. We sigh you out into the air and watch you rise like rain. For me, it's, um, it's that last bit there, you're mm -hmm. still alive, that ha-ha part that I find really, yeah. really powerful. Um, and, you know, terribly sad. Um, so I'm curious what you guys think of the poem and if, uh, if you guys liked it and, and, and what your thoughts I loved it. I think... I, I've never read any Mary Carr, so now I'm I'm ordering books because the I'm. The liar's is so good. Well, just I mean this this poem is amazing, and I, I I'm one of those people like I see the word suicide in a poem and I just want to roll my right. eyes like ugh you know because it's such a you know it's not that it's an easy subject obviously but it, it's a it's I guess it's a a, a poetic subject to begin right. with you know it's mm -hmm. something that is you know you sort of earn points immediately by having a poem be about suicide, but this is so uh, nuanced and wonderful. And um, yeah, I loved it. Um, I was surprised to find out that she's actually very religious. Yeah, a devout um, Catholic. I, I, because reading this, I thought it was actually more critical of 
Catholicism. Well, and, it totally is. Um, I mean, it says, you know, is, yeah. my church would have you roast in hell, you know, um, right. and right. that I would smite the self-smitten. But I guess I thought that the religious imagery was all being used um, ironically or cynically or, you know, and mm-hmm. but it's not. She's actually uh, inhabiting the religious imagery. And, um, and I, I think it works. Either I mean, either way, I, I, I love it. I think it's a beautiful poem. And the image of the angel that you get at the last, the end without her having to say the word mm-hmm. angel at all. You know, each set of lungs, those rosy implanted wings. Oh, it's, it's just beautiful. Really and powerful stuff. Um, yeah, it's a great poem. It actually, I love the way it looks on the page too, mm-hmm. which is not something I usually think about with poetry, but the poem is divided into these uh, three line stanzas where each one sort of moves farther in on the page, like an indent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just, I don't know why it really worked for me. Uh, it, it actually really helped the poem, which is not something I usually notice. There is a lot of phrases or images that I really loved in this. I really loved face vanished into the mm-hmm. noose. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. that the, you know, once the noose is on that some fading effect happens and that that's the that's the end. I love that. I also love the haha part. I I was very surprised by it, which is the best possible feeling, I think. Despite your best efforts, you are every second alive in a hard gnawing way for all who breathed you deeply in. Oh man. Fuck. Yeah, the poem is great because it alternates between this sense of empathy, you know, mm-hmm. this understanding for this person and their sadness, but then also some tough love in there, too, mm-hmm. you know, some sort of screw you for doing this to us. It's it's perfectly balanced. Neither takes over the poem. Right. It, it walks mm-hmm. that line constantly. So almost from line to line, you're feeling this, this sense of blame and uh, anger, but then also... In the next line, complete empathy and understanding and sympathy. And then it all comes together in that ha-ha, because that's the ultimate, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, in a way, sort of celebrating this person, but also telling them, screw you for having done right. this. Oh, it's just, it's mm-hmm. tonally, it's wonderful. And, and yeah, it's probably the best poem about suicide I've ever read. And there's a there's a fuck ton of poems about suicide. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems like, it, I you know, I, I said that, but now I'm like, well... There's also a lot of poems, like, we think of Sylvia Plath, but it's because she actually committed right. suicide. Her poems themselves aren't often about suicide. No, I, don't I even think, think there's a lot references. of poems about people killing themselves, other people killing right. themselves. Um, you know, was it Vonnegut said that it's the exclamation point at the end of a poet's life? Um, you know, it, but I think what the, the poem also does, um, and I think this is what good literature always does for me, uh, irrespective of its fiction, nonfiction, or poem, is it... It gives um, it gives a platform for what I already believed to to share that belief. Like all these people that I've lost, um, whether they've killed themselves or they've died of you know some terrible disease or whatever, that your memory keeps them alive. Um, you know mm-hmm. that they live on because of you. As Tennyson said, that you're I am part of all that I have met. Well, that's true for the people that you've loved and lost as well. That they don't stop. Um, being part of you it's such a comforting feeling i i mean it's a good reminder that you know people aren't just the end of their life or the last decision right. they made i wish uh we didn't think of people like sylvia plath only because of the end of her life mm-hmm. i mean she was a good poet in her own right speaking of the choices we make eric puckner um wrote an essay for gq called the cooler me and what he did was he in the midst of a very domestic time in his life where he has a baby and a toddler, uh, he decided to seek out someone who was his 
possible doppelganger, his theoretical doppelganger, someone who had made completely different choices uh, with his life and see who was happier or, you know, he doesn't directly say that, but there's obvious comparison and measurement going on throughout. So what did you guys think of this one? I loved it. It's a, it's a great essay. Yeah. It's it's incredibly well written. I'm excited to find out that he's written fiction because I thought just on a simple language level, mm-hmm. this was a really cool essay. Mm-hmm. And we should we should draw the parallels here. So Eric uh, Puchner, the writer, is the, is a writer and he has a novel called Model Home that's out now. But he asks his friends basically, "Hey, can you find someone who basically had the same?" you know, Genesis point, you know, went to good schools, you know, has a solid family or, you know, did as growing up, you know, same basic upbringing till you know, 18 or whatever. And so a lot of his friends emailed him, contacted him and said, this person, this person, this person. So finally he settled on a singer songwriter named Kyle Field. And, and then he basically emails him and says, Hey, um, I'm told that we had similar lives and, you know, now you've diverged. And so he spends time with him in uh, in Portland, um, and then again in San Francisco. And you know, basically, Eric has this normal—well, not normal. I mean, he's a writer and he has a house and kids and stuff. But he goes and you know, this guy's a singer-songwriter, so he's he's in Portland. He's staying in a house that doesn't have a roof, and there's a teepee in the backyard, and they're growing weed, and everyone's and drunk. Strangers, walk, <laughs> strangers walking walk through. Yeah, it's basically a look at the bohemian lifestyle versus a more suburban domestic lifestyle and Eric wishing or wondering about the other the other lifestyle. And it's I don't know, it's it's good. It's a good essay because it doesn't really settle it one way or the other. It leaves it kind of you're left with this feeling of like. Well, which one is happier? Whose life is better? Um, you know, which is weird. And he knows that that question is kind of a weird question because it's not about better. But you still, you can't help but yeah. But you it know, is yeah. He, it I is. Mean, <laughs> there, it's interesting because I, I do think that what I really liked about it is that they were both given equal good and bad, mm-hmm. you know, checks in the column. Mm-hmm. Uh, and however, though, you know, it's just like, of course. Someone with kids has to end. Like they, it's mm-hmm. almost a reminder that we all kind of have to convince ourselves of our own happiness. Like there's yep. no other ending for this essay other than like, here's some great moments of my kids that make it all worth it, you know. Mm-hmm. And Kyle could write the essay like, here's some great moments playing my guitar on my roofless house that make it all worth it. It's like, why can we not <laughs> resist the urge to say like. Well, I've decided I make I made the right choice. Not like there's empirical evidence that I made the right choice, but I'm still deciding if it's up in the uh, air, I'm still going to, you know, reaffirm that what I did was the right thing to do. So do you think at the end of this essay he he's really reaffirming uh yes. I mean I I yeah, you yeah. think it's definitely like I'm so glad I had kids and not having kids would be a waste of a life or a missing i mean I, no 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 i would never i don't think that he would write that any choice would be a bad choice mm-hmm. but i mean this is also an interesting question for the three of us because we're all childless right but um you know most things that i have read or even like heard people chattering about when they have kids is you know a lot of struggle but there's always an ending note of but Kids are 
Kids are the best. <laughs> They're the best thing ever. I mean, <laughs> to, on a lighter note, <laughs> I have this friend who, um, one of my Facebook friends who will go unnamed. I'm sure she doesn't listen to this. <laughs> who literally, like, three times a day puts up things she hates about her children. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be friends with her. I need to be friends. Is it Erica? And I hope it's Erica. so entertaining. No, it's not Erica. Uh, but, like, once in a while, she'll just be like, I have the best life <laughs> it's like everything she says is complaints and then like ding 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 i have the best life so it's it's really interesting like i think that a lot of people wonder if having kids is the right decision or not but that's not a decision you can go back on i think the question of you know is your life better with children or not or is it better to be this sort of you know bohemian life where you're just looking for the next wave um be it literal or metaphorical in, in kyle's case um i mean that's that's the the midlife struggle we all have. I mean, you two are fortunate mm-hmm. you haven't hit that midlife struggle yet. But like you know, uh, the year I turned forty, um, my mom died. My dad had been dead for a couple of years. Um, I wanted to figure out if we were going to have kids. All these things that you come up and you start thinking about what's the value of a human life that you start to struggle with in the middle. And that's exactly how old Kyle and um, Eric are in this essay. Because you start accounting, you know, and when you're young, you think there's an eternity for things. And then at some point you realize, oh, no, I now have less time than I had before. And now I'm counting towards the end. This essay was interesting for me because um, it's sort of for me, it's like a couple years down the line. You know, like I'm at a point right now where all of my friends are just having kids, Mm -hmm. like babies are being born right now. And. And so our lives, our friendships are starting to change, and I'm mm-hmm. very career-focused right now and, and artistically focused. So for me, I'm sort of at that crossroads, uh, you know, that he was at, I guess, five years before he wrote this essay. So this essay is from a perspective of, of regret or, or questioning mm-hmm. regret, um, which is interesting to read because I, because of that backwards-looking perspective... You're right, Julia. He he's going to rationalize whatever decision he's already made. Mm-hmm. I mean, you kind of have to. Um, and I guess that's the question I'm constantly asking myself: is which will I regret more? You know, mm-hmm. being 50 and not having kids, right. but maybe having this great career, or being 50 having kids and barely making you know uh, you know the career that I want, or not having expressed myself to the fullest extent. I'm glad we read this and are talking about this because in the Atlantic a couple months ago in June, an article came out, uh, said why women still can't have it all. And it was Mm -hmm. about, you know, choosing between parenthood and career and, and, you know, I read it and it came out a couple days before I interviewed Joan Didion. And some, one of the audience questions was like, Joan Didion, what do you think? Why can't women have it all? And all she said was, I was never under the impression that anyone could have it all. Next question. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Shit. And the, yeah, and the person wanted this, like, huge feminist analysis of, you know, of everything. And she's absolutely right. That's an essential truth right there, you know? Yeah. It was a great moment, you know, because I'm glad that, without it being in the context of feminism, you know, you guys are bringing up the same arguments that, you know, people are saying are primarily a woman's issue, which we shouldn't get into in depth anyway, but I'm, I'm glad that 
we all feel the same sense of gnawing regret. I think <laughs> I think what an essay like this also does is it makes you question your value system from when you were 18 or 25 or 35 or 40 or 41. Um, and, you know, it also, it, it, you have to decide when you read something like this because you become a player in it too. You, you immediately have to start analyzing your own life when you read something like this is – that the value of your happiness has changed. You know, when I was mm-hmm. when I was 20 or 21 or 22, you know, I I thought that I deserved, you know, certain things. You know, whether it was with my writing career or with love or with anything. I thought this is what I deserve. But the older you get, the more you realize, man, everything you're doing you have to work for. You don't deserve anything. You you have to make it happen mm-hmm. on your own. And if that's children or if that's books or if that's movies or if that's whatever. Love. Love. Those are the choices that you make, you know, and the choices come with hard work and huge fuck-ups. I, I wanted to talk about the ending, the last the paragraph mm-hmm. where about the poet who almost dies on stage. <laughs> Yikes. I thought that was so cool. And it's W. It's w. S. Merwin. Oh, is that who it is? I didn't go look it up. But he references a specific poem with the line, bowing, not knowing to mm-hmm. what. And it's a great poem. Uh, it's online. Uh, so we should put a link to it because it's actually it's a wonderful poem. It's one of the most famous po- poems of the last 20 years. And uh, I hadn't read it in a long time. It's a very short little poem, but it relates to the essay in a lot of ways. It's actually definitely a good read. Um, so this does dovetail nicely into um, the next thing that we're going to talk about, which is a short story called Happiness Will Be Yours by the writer Joe Mino. Um, which actually appeared in the literary it's magazine. It's almost like we planned for these three to go together. I know, but we didn't, which is weird. Um, <laughs> so it's a short story that appeared in the literary magazine Other Voices, uh, which doesn't exist anymore, but the, their website's still up, so we'll, we'll put a link up to, um, to the story. And I should, I should note my bias here that Other Voices um, published a bunch of my stories over the years, and then they became a book press and have published two of my books. So there's my literary bias. Um, but at any rate, Joe Mino is a, a very interesting and unusual writer, and my favorite, he, he's written a, a bunch of books, my favorite of which is uh, The Boy Detective Fails, is that the right title of it? Which is, um, catches up with Encyclopedia yeah. Brown as an adult, um, and, and, and really goes through what a <laughs> horrible, great. terrible life. But he's written uh, a lot of uh, good books. He's got a new book out right now as well. Um, so w- we thought we'd have you guys read this short story because it's a, a good entry in- into his sort of skewed point of view. Um, and-, and it's an unusually written short story um, with an, certainly an unusual topic. It's about um, two boys who were kidnapped. And um, w- after they are discovered... Um, they are given free passes for life, they're told, to this amusement park. That's the backstory of the story. Um, mm-hmm. And the story catches up with them on a day they're going to the amusement park again when they're much later in life. And you find out. Because they have like an annual tradition right. where they go to the amusement park once a year to just catch up. And, right. mm-hmm. and the narrator is in the midst of thinking he's not going to come back because he feels like he's moved on in life. Uh, as opposed to the other guy who is still kind of messed up in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And it opens with him crying as he hugs him at the entrance to this amusement park. And, oh, it's such a good story. I loved this story. (laughs) (laughs) And it's it's a wonderfully written story because it's it's really Mm -hmm. direct. I mean, there's not a lot of metaphor or anything in here. It's just a simple retelling Mm -hmm. told in a a bifurcated way, which you guys will see when, when you read it. The, what I also find fascinating is that the, the most tortured of the two, uh, Billy, 
his glasses are broken during the time that um, they're kidnapped. So he can't see what our narrator can see when they're children, which is that they're in a basement filled with graves. And there are two empty graves waiting for them to be put into. Um, and so he plays along with his friend, even though he can see what the truth really is, you know. And, and it's, I mean, it's, it's shattering in its sadness and awfulness and the worry you feel, even though you know they get out, you know that they never got out. You know that these two guys are still struggling with this. Part of the part of that tragedy remains in those children. It remains in them as an adult that 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 small child is still there, just beneath the surface. And it's it's clear in the story that that's the case. Um, but there's also weird stuff in this. I mean, um, <laughs> the only the only reason that they're discovered uh, is that a psychic sees them, and you know. That's how they get found. It's not that the cops stumble them, so the psychic tells the police where to find them, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, it's sort of a weird anticlimactic end to the uh, the, the the kidnapping storyline in a way, because that's I mean, I think the story is really masterful in that it draws you in by this sort of what happened when they were kids. As a reader, you're like, oh god, how did they get mm-hmm. out of this situation? It draws you in with like that question, answers that very simply mm-hmm. and sort of like. You know, oh, it, it was nothing they did. It was nothing that exciting. It's kind of just a, they were, you know, stuck in this basement, and then they got found by the psychic haphazardly. Um, and then it replaces that the the ending of the story that what you end up being satisfied with ends up kind of being a love story about um, the narrator and a woman that he's having an affair with. And the positive note that the story ends on is that it seems like he's going to pursue this relationship or take it more seriously than he has. And I thought that was wonderful mm-hmm. sort of sleight of hand to draw you in with this kidnapping backstory and then actually make it a really great present story about this guy learning to express himself more or, you know, uh, take chances and go for this relationship. Yeah, and I think I think it's it's a lot about relationships. It's about, you know, the lengths you'll go for the people that you care about, even if you're not supposed to care about them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the relationship between the two boys, you know, Billy... Um, is the one who has his glasses broken. You know, he's he's just a he's a fuck up. Um, and you know, the, this other guy, this other kid who grows up, who's a narrator, still clearly cares for him, but is also repulsed by the revisiting over and over again of this terrible situation that he has to go to. But the thing that, and this is going to sound crazy, but the thing that really um, grabs me in the story is is the old amusement park. Yeah, settings can do all the work, you know. I mean, it's easy to see that it's representing a dangerous and dilapidated childhood that they're still living in, Mm -hmm. you know. The one thing I really did not like about this story, (laughs) and it almost kind of ruined it for me, is the last, like, couple sentences. The teenage wasteland bit? Yes. Why do they have to be listening to Teenage Wasteland? Like, it is so on the nose. It was just too... It's like, suddenly it became the very predictable soundtrack. It's like like watching a movie where, you know, they're going to dance, so everybody dance now comes on. You know, like... (laughs) It was eye-rolling for me. It was so on the nose. Yeah, I agree. I think it could have been cut a little bit earlier, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I I think he could have just stopped it on the, the last line of dialogue you know what yeah. the heck mm-hmm. is right he says you gotta take what you can get i mean that's yep you know mm-hmm. it, it says it all mm-hmm. right there 
Teenage Wasteland. Wasteland. <laughs> bow, bow, bow. <laughs> I hear the <laughs> Remember, I don't listen to words. I think it's out here in the fields, but I, I don't know after that. I got out here. That's pretty good for me. Well, today we investigated happiness and death in their relationship. Light themes for our mixtape. Well, and you know, here's the thing. When I made mixtapes when I was a kid, I was invariably making them for someone else. I made a lot of mixtapes for girls. God, what a douchebag I was. I'd be like, you've... If you want to get with this, you got to understand um, side two of Ultravox's album Lament. Um, Dancing with tears in my eyes. That's my jam right there. Oh, oh God. God. Dancing oh. with tears <laughs> in my eyes. <laughs> Waiting for the moment. Oh, God. What a douchebag I was. that's it for this week's episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we discuss our first play, The Libertine by Stephen Jeffries. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco, and follow us on Twitter, at literary disco. Thanks for listening.